After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When therefore they had rowed about three or four, four, three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. They came, there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, that is God, has set his seal. 
They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. But they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it And not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also, which I shall give for the life of the world, is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live 
because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the scriptures that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that we will read your scriptures, we will hear the gospel, and see that its most important component, the essential component, is our spiritual life. Not merely that you give us good things in this world, not merely that you protect us, that you love us and care for our daily needs. We do thank you for those things. Yet, Lord, our prayer is that we will not be like these people who are so fixated on the physical things of life, wanting to see their food provided every day, and that they don't see the food that lasts, the food that endures to eternal life. Teach us, Lord, to have eyes that are open, ears that are open, hearts that are sensitive to the things of God so that we love and we long for that which is eternal, heavenly, and spiritual. Grant that to us as we study this portion. In the name of Christ, amen. In the first part of John chapter 6, we saw from the previous uh, section from John chapter 6, 1 to 15, that Christ, when he was preaching to the people, the people assembled and they heard the word, but it was late in the day. And because there was a need at that moment, he provided a need at that time for 5,000 men plus women and children. He produced a miracle out of a few fish and a few loaves, and he provided for a multitude of people. He did that because there was an urgent need at the moment. He did not attract them that way. 
He provided for them that way because there was a need. There is a difference between attracting people, enticing people with food and with entertainment and whatever other means. There's a difference between doing that which is wrong, unbiblical, then, and compared to that which is right. That is, when you see a need, help the people in need. That's what Jesus did here at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 to 15. However, the people mistook it. The people mistook it. In verse 15, they want to take him by force and make him king. Why do they want to take him by force and make him king? So that they can have their own nation and the Romans would not rule over them. So that they could have their own nation and this king who would amply provide for their physical prosperity, who would amply provide for their physical wants, not only their wants, uh, but anything, even their luxuries. We want a miracle-working king who will always give us plenty of food to eat. This was their ill motive. This was a false motive for them to take Jesus by force to make him king. This is a constant problem. It is a constant problem in this chapter, but it's also throughout Scripture and throughout history, even today, that people want Christ to be king only because they want their physical needs and even worse, their physical wants, their luxuries provided. They look to Christ for those things. They don't look to Christ for spiritual realities, for truth, for spiritual truth that leads to eternal life. And throughout this chapter, they persist even when the master teacher, the greatest of all teachers and preachers, the one who has all true knowledge, was living there in front of them, teaching them. They refused to see it throughout this whole chapter because by the time we get to the middle of the chapter, we see that Jesus confronts their blindness their blindness that only sees the material world, that only sees the physical world and does not bridge the gap between the material world and the spiritual world, especially when the Lord Himself, the greatest of all teachers, is teaching them and telling them, I am the bread that I'm talking about. I am the bread of life that I've been explaining. And they still refused. They said, that's too difficult. That's too hard. And they withdrew, they walked away. Well, we pick it up here in the middle of it in verses 16 to 29. The Apostle John further illustrates their obstinate, insensitive spiritual senses. They have dead spiritual senses, and that is what he's illustrating in our section 16 to 29. Verse 16. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Here we find that they are crossing the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, and it's known by different names. At the beginning of the chapter, it was called the Sea of Tiberias. And this is where they are. They are on one side of it. That's where the miracle occurred. And now the disciples are intending to go across it to get to the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was the station or the residence of Christ during his three years of ministry. They are going there. But they go there without Christ. And why? 
Because Christ had withdrew by himself alone into the mountain to avoid the multitudes arresting him and forcing him to become king. He did that. So the disciples depart to go on a boat to the other side of the lake without Christ there. But what happens on the sea? Verses 18 to 21. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They are at sea, and this area is notorious for having sudden storms. And so a strong wind blows while they are rowing and trying to make their way across miles of sea. Now, this also is called a lake, because it was a few more miles than this for them to reach the other side. But they are in the middle of it right here, three or four miles and rowing there. Jesus encounters them on the sea. He is drawing near on the sea. He's walking on the sea and they become frightened. Well, it's nighttime. And at nighttime, presumably, there was some light to Jesus' presence so that they saw him in the middle of a dark night at sea. They saw him and maybe also they had lights in the boat. We don't know. But they become frightened when they see Jesus. And why? Because if there is a mysterious light in the distance and Jesus is, or someone's approaching, you wonder what's going on. Is this a ghost? Is, is something strange and unusual happening? And so naturally they were frightened. But Jesus calms their spirits and says, It is I, do not be afraid. Right? He reminds them that when he is there, there is no need to be afraid. And they weren't. They believed him. They believed him. And that's why it says in 21, they received him into the boat. And then when he came into the boat, immediately they reached shore. Another aspect of the miracle. Immediately they reach shore once Jesus enters the boat. They didn't have to keep rowing and struggling against the storm in order to reach shore. They reached safely, miraculously, all because of Christ. They trusted him. They believed that he was there coming, approaching the boat, and then they reach shore. Everything goes well. Another miracle takes place before their very eyes, or a couple of miracles at least, takes place before their very eyes. Verses 22 to 24. The multitudes. What is their relationship to reaching the other side? Verse, now, the disciples, they reached it by going at sea. They reached it by a sudden storm. They reached it by a miracle but they did reach the other side. In one sense, they struggled and Jesus helped them. But notice in verses 22 to 24. The next day, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat, small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came 
other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. The crowds, they noticed what had happened. Jesus had escaped their grasp and that the disciples went to the other side without Christ there, without Christ in the boat. They choose to go with the disciples rather than to wait for Jesus to return and to figure out where Jesus is. They choose to follow the disciples, perhaps thinking maybe Jesus will end up meeting up with his disciples. Verse 23, there were other small boats from Tiberias. Tiberias is the name of one of the cities on the perimeter of the Sea of Galilee. And some boats were coming from that city of Tiberias to the place where the multitudes had eaten this bread, miraculous bread, after the Lord had given thanks. That's John telling us. It's a a bit of an aside, but it's significant because remember when we studied the first part of the chapter, we showed that Christ first gave thanks and then he partook. He made sure that people first thank God for what provisions, physical provisions he had provided for them, and then they partook of them. And this is a clear distinction between Christians and pagans, Christians and unbelievers. Unbelievers don't acknowledge that every physical thing comes from God. They don't repeatedly, repetitively, consistently acknowledge that truth. But we know that truth. Yes, we are thankful and very grateful that our physical provisions are given to us by God. We give thanks, therefore, as the Lord did. Verse 24. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Okay? They correctly, they correctly Assume that the disciples went there to Capernaum. That is his residence, the residence of Christ and the disciples during his ministry. So eventually, after he escaped their grasp, they would be able to find him again in Capernaum, meeting up with the rest of the disciples, the 12 disciples. That is correct. But when it says seeking Jesus, we will find out now, and this will be our focus in verses 25 to 29, we will find out now that they are not seeking Jesus for the right reason. They are not seeking Jesus for the right reason. Notice this word, seeking Jesus. The multitude, many, many people, they went into small boats to cross the sea to reach the other side to meet up with Christ and his disciples. They took great effort to do so. Great effort to do so. God did not inhibit their great effort to meet up with Christ and the disciples, although their motives were suspect. Although they weren't seeking Christ for the right reasons, God did not inhibit them from hearing more words of Christ. Why do we say that? Why do we point that out? We point it out because it is typical of sinners 
to exert great effort and spend great amounts of money in order to sin more in the face of God, in the name of God. It's not uncommon for people to use the name of God and say they are pursuing God, but all the while exert great effort, strain themselves, and then spend a lot of money in order to reach a certain goal, and all in the name of seeking Jesus. It's not uncommon. That's what we find here. So how does Christ confront this constant, persistent sin in people? How does Christ? Is he not our example, the supreme example? So let's see how Jesus handles it. Verses 25 and following. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They are naturally astonished, Rabbi or teacher, when did you get here? Because they saw that only the, the disciples got into a boat and crossed to the other side. So, how did he get there? We know the answer, right? We know the answer. He crossed miraculously, walking on the water. Then he joined up with the disciples in their boat, calmed their fears, and immediately they reached the other side. He did it miraculously. That's how he got there. Does Jesus explain it? Does Jesus tell them how it happened? He doesn't. Why does he not do so? Because the main issue is not how Jesus got there. The main issue is, why are you seeking me? Right? The main issue is, why are you seeking me? Jesus knows that, so he doesn't answer their question. Because their question would lead, lead them in a wrong direction to pursue that which they are falsely pursuing, wrongly pursuing. So he avoids that answer completely. We know the answer, but he avoids answering them in order to get to the heart of the matter. He is, Jesus is very, very skilled at doing so. And we must learn from him. Get to the heart of the matter. And what is the heart of the matter? Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. There he hit the target, right there. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. Remember verse 24? Seeking Jesus. They were seeking Jesus. And he says, you seek me. You are exerting so much effort in seeking me. What? Not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What does he mean? Not because you saw signs. He means not because you saw miraculous signs. And what is a sign? A sign signifies something more important. A sign signifies something greater. And he's saying, you are seeking me not because you saw signs and you understand the significance of the signs and what their material or what their essential matter is. And what is the purpose of signs in the book of John? What is the purpose of signs in the book of John? Let's read why. Keep your place here in John 6. 
John chapter, keep your place and then turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 30. John 20, 30. Twenty, thirty, and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Here he tells us clearly that the reason for signs, in verse 30, he mentions signs, and by signs, he doesn't mean like a stop sign, just merely that. He's talking about a miraculous sign. The reason for a miraculous physical miracle is to understand the miraculous spiritual sign or miracle. That's what his, his point is. And if we understand the spiritual essential nature of a miracle that Jesus performs, what will we do? Verse 31. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The purpose of the sign is to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the purpose. The purpose is not the physical enjoyment. Now my stomach is full because I ate plenty sufficiently of bread and fish. That's not the purpose. The purpose is not even to do it for the rest of your life, to have enough food to eat. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by believing He died and rose again for us. That is the purpose of the sign. That's why Christ said, back in John 6, 26, you seek me not because you saw signs. Meaning, you saw signs, understood their significance, and now you believe in me. Now, can we confirm that they do not believe in him? Can we confirm that throughout this chapter? Because he's actually asserting that in verse 26 but sometimes it needs to be explained some more. Let's look, for example, at verse 30. Verse 30. They said, therefore, to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? See, they understood the connection. May see and believe you. What work do you perform? Now, actually, this is a blasphemous and astonishing question, or two questions. Why? He already did. He already did. Since John chapter 2, he has been performing signs, and he even did on the other side of the Sea of Galilee for them by the provision of the food of, of fish and bread. He already did. And they know he miraculously reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Correct? They know that. He didn't answer it, but they could correctly, implicitly assume that that's how it happened, even though it wasn't explained to them by Christ. They knew that. And yet they have the audacity to say, 
what sign, what do you do for a sign that we might believe? What are you going to do? They are staunchly obstinate. Okay? Then Jesus explains that he himself is the bread in whom they should put their faith. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He tells them to their face, you do not believe. Look at verse 41. He continues to explain that he is the bread of life. In verse 41, they can't handle it. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They grumble. They grumble and dispute. Look at verse 52. 52. The Jews, therefore, began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now they're arguing and disputing with each other. How can this happen? Look at verse 60. Verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? They were grumbling and stumbling over the truths Jesus taught them. They could not tolerate it. Then he says, then it says in verse 64, 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He knew that they, many of them, or in this passage, some of them did not believe. Finally, as he is teaching them and he's answering them, finally, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They withdrew. They are called disciples in the false sense. They pretend to be disciples, but they're not true disciples. That's how John means it in John 6, 66. And they weren't walking with him anymore. So Jesus turns to the twelve and he challenges them. You do not want to go away also, do you? And then because the many walked away, withdrew and walked away, and because Jesus said, you do not want to go away also, do you? Did Jesus mean that if you walk away from him, that you don't have eternal life, that you go to hell? Yes, that's how Peter meant it. And Jesus confirms it. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And in 70 to 71, Jesus affirms that he chose the 12 to be his apostles, but the 11 have eternal life and one does not. Judas does not. 11 have it and one do not. So we are talking about matters of eternal life and eternal death. So, in returning, let's return to 626. He is addressing unbelievers, and unbelievers are the ones who come up with these questions and with these disputes, grumbling and looking for ways not to believe in the words of Christ. Back to 626. 
But because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Because you ate of the loaves and were filled. This is the uh, persistent and pernicious problem of mankind. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. It doesn't matter what your upbringing is. It doesn't matter into which religion you were raised. All of this doesn't matter. The persistent and uh, uh, pernicious problem, destructive problem that we all have is that we are looking to God to give us food and drink, clothing, houses, cars, luxuries, vacations, pleasures. We are constantly looking to God. Even Muslims do that. And Hindus do that. Everybody does that. And those within Christianity do that. This is the the way of the sinner, the unbelieving man, who is so fixated, so focused on the physical world that he wants God to provide everything according to his own whims for the physical world. So what he wants is everything in the physical world. He wants to eat of the loaves and have his belly full in this physical world with the added promise that you can continue living that way, even live in your sin, and still go to heaven. This is the way of mankind, within Christianity and outside. I want everything I want now, and also add a cherry to the top, add a cherry to the top and promise me that I have eternal life. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way at all. And Jesus confronts this sinful attitude. Verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, that is God, has set his seal. Do not work. Remember we spoke that they were working. They took great pains to go to the other side of the sea. They took great pains to seek Jesus so that Jesus would be their assurance of their provisions, physical provisions. But Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes. Don't be so preoccupied, so obsessed, so addicted to making sure you have your physical provisions that it clouds your thinking, it blinds your your eyes to seeing the spiritual world. Don't do that. Don't work in that way because the physical food perishes. It either perishes in the sense that an animal is killed and then we cook and consume the animal and then it perishes because the remnants uh, exit our body, right? In that sense. But they also perish because many times the fields and the animals, they die and they rot and they just go away. And then the vultures come, right? It happens like that. So physical food, in one way or another, it comes and goes. It's very temporary. But not eternal food. Not eternal food. It endures to eternal life, he says. The food which endures to eternal life. And who is the giver of that food? Who provides this eternal food? None other, no one, except the Son of Man. And God the Father has set His seal on the Son of Man. That is, the stamp of approval of the Son of Man, Christ, is coming from God the Father. 
which we have seen leading up to this chapter, especially in chapter 5, that God the Father has indeed shown that His approval is on His Son, the Son of Man. So look to Christ, not to anyone else. And we must say this repeatedly. And this is eternal life, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 5. Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. In the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, with all these examples in Scripture, we have a clear teaching that Christ is the only way to God. We must believe in Christ to be saved. It says in Romans 3, 26, that He, God, is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's required for us to have faith in Jesus. So when they walk away from Jesus and they cling on to something else or someone else, there's no eternal life. Correct? So when people here in the United States or anywhere around the world, when they do not believe in Jesus Christ, do they have eternal life? No. No. And what we mean by Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, we're not talking about any definition of Jesus. We're not talking about any description or portrayal of Jesus. We're talking about the biblical definition of Jesus. Because if it's a false portrayal, a false Jesus, a false Christ, and it's not the biblical Christ, then we are worshiping an idol. And no one who worships idols goes to heaven. We have to have the biblical Christ, the biblical definition of Jesus set before us and preached to others for them to go to heaven, because that is the only way to heaven. This emphasizes the fact that The gospel is exclusive. It's exclusive only for those who put true faith in the true Jesus. True faith in the true Jesus. It is insufficient for a Muslim to say, yes, I believe Jesus is a prophet. Yes, I believe Jesus was perfect. Yes, I believe Jesus was born of a virgin. That's insufficient. Because they deny the deity of Christ, that he is the Son of God. They deny that they have to reject their idol, Allah. They deny that they have to reject that false God, Allah, and believe in the true God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? And they also deny that Jesus actually died on the cross and then rose from the dead. If he never died on the cross, he never rose from the dead. At their core, they are denying our core. That is, the death and resurrection of Christ for our forgiveness and eternal life. So it doesn't matter if they say they believe in Jesus. 
The, the next question is, which Jesus, sir? And your Jesus is not the biblical Jesus, and your Jesus will not save anybody from sin. And your false God, Allah, will not save you from your sin. That's just one example. Just, that's just one example. We could speak of Catholics. We could speak of evangelical, popular evangelical Christianity and the misconceptions they have of Jesus Christ. We could speak of cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, Adventists, right? We could speak of all kinds of people. That's why it's so important for us to be familiar with the true Christ of the Bible and explain the true Christ to others that they might be truly saved. There is no other way except Him. Verse 28. They said therefore to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Christ said in 27, Work for the food which endures to eternal life. Then they ask in 28, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? What's the problem? Their problem is they are thinking, well, if I just do these works, then I will have eternal life. That's their mentality. If I just do these works, I will receive eternal life. And people do think this way. Jews thought this way. They still think this way. Those in Christian families, they think this way, unless they are truly born again. They think this way. People all around the world think this way. They think this way that what works must I perform? What deeds must I perform? Good deeds must I perform to receive eternal life? Is that not what the rich young ruler said? And the rich young ruler from Matthew 19, didn't the rich young ruler think that he was doing the works of God and therefore he deserved eternal life? And was not the rich young ruler also rich, as he's usually called, the rich young ruler? He owned much property and he walked away from Christ. Why? Because he himself was fixated and focused, obsessed with his material possessions. And he loved them so much, it was impossible for him to love Christ. If we love our material wealth, you cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's not the physical world we should love. It is the spiritual world, and especially in the person of Jesus Christ. We should love Him, not the physical things, including physical relationships. Including physical relationships. We must love Christ and Christ alone. And not imagine, well... If we don't have the kind of love we're supposed to have, well, maybe God will be happy with these two or three things that I do, and then I'll have eternal life. Two or three things, and then I will receive eternal life. Or maybe even just one. Maybe even just one thing. Sometimes religions heap many, many things, and sometimes they will say, no, you don't have to do the 10,000 things. You don't have to do these 100,000 things if only you do this one. 
Well, whether it's 100,000 acts of obedience or just one act of obedience, all of them are worthless. Because if we think my one act of obedience or my 10 or my 100,000 or my million throughout my life will garner the favor of God, will be deserving of eternal life, what is it that we are despising? What is it that we are hating? What is it that we are disdaining, whether we say it or not? What is it? It is the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. How is it that we could say, as he explains later, first figuratively, um, about how he's going to die for the sins of sinners, right? When he's explaining that, they are not understanding it. He's explaining that they must believe in his death. How could it be that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the perfect one, the righteous one, the servant of the Lord, would come into the world, God in human flesh, the perfect God and the perfect man, 100% God and 100% man, in one person, in Jesus Christ. How is it that if he is so glorious like that, if he is so righteous like that, how is it that we could say, yeah, but look at my works? When we say, yeah, but look at my works, what is the focus? Our works, not Christ. And in that way, we are actually spitting at God. We're spitting in the face of God yeah, yeah, that's fine and good, but, but this. And the focus is the this, which is you and me. Our goodness, our works, our deeds, it's not the way. It's not the way. That's why Jesus said in verse 29. He says in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's necessary for them to believe in Him, in Christ, whom the Father sent. If the Father sent the Son into the world, how could we denigrate the purpose and work of the Father if we claim to know the Father? If you claim to know God the Father, you claim to love Him, you want Him, then how can you do so when you are not believing in the one Jesus, uh, the, the one the Father sent, that is, in Jesus Christ. We spoke of that. But look at this curious phrase. This is the work of God that you believe in Him. This is the work of God. What did Christ mean? This is the work of God. Did He mean, this is the work of God, that is, if you do this one thing, if you, on your own effort, if you by your will, if you by your free will and good will, if you do just this one thing, then you receive eternal life. Eternal life is here. It's waiting for you. But you need to do just this one thing. You do this one thing that God has prescribed and then you receive eternal life. Did he mean it that way? No, he meant that God working in them would produce faith in Christ and the result would be eternal life. 
He meant God does a work in them, they believe in Christ, then they receive eternal life. This is what he meant. Let's confirm it here in chapter 6 and as well other places. John chapter 6, 63. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. If the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. That means we cannot do anything because whatever we do brings nothing about. The flesh brings nothing about. Why is it that the flesh brings nothing about? John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Jesus is dialoguing with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an individual example of the crowds of John chapter 6. He's an individual, a knowledgeable individual, individual but not knowledgeable enough because he doesn't understand what it means to be born again. So verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What does the flesh produce? Flesh. So if the flesh produces flesh, then the flesh cannot produce eternal life, which is spiritual and which is brought about by the Spirit. John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. John 3 and verse 6, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Therefore, it's necessary to be born of the Spirit. The flesh cannot make us born of the Spirit. The flesh cannot make us born of the Spirit. What does the flesh do? John chapter 3. What does the flesh do? John 3, 19. John 3, 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. There is condemnation because people do not come to the light. They love darkness rather than light. Their deeds are deeds of evil, evil deeds. And that's a big word. I mean, a a strong word. It's a strong word. And we think. We have a propensity to think. Well, if I have a thought that I don't want to share with others because I might be embarrassed, it's a, you know, it's not so good of a thought, then we think, okay, that's bad, but, you know, I just shake it off and that's okay. But no, the evil, the the thoughts are evil thoughts. When we tell a lie, it's evil, right? When we believe what is false, that's evil. Evil in the Bible is not just some notorious serial murderer. That is evil, certainly, but it's not just that. It's anything contrary to God that prevents us from coming to God. Because he says here, we love darkness rather than light. Our deeds are evil. And when we do evil deeds, we hate the light. So that means we could never love the light 
in our flesh since we love darkness, since we do evil, since we hate. We could never come to Christ, the light of the world. It's impossible. It's impossible in our natural condition. So a miracle has to occur. And when the miracle occurs, look at 21. John 3, 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. If we do come to the light, how is it that we come to the light? According to John 3, 21. Because our deeds are wrought in God. Our works are wrought in God. Meaning God is the one that makes us do that. He transforms us by the Holy Spirit, being haters, being evil, loving darkness. He transforms us by His Holy Spirit to miraculously love the light, miraculously walk to the light, miraculously believe in the light. That's what He means. One more place in John, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This passage in John 1 is often quoted, but misquoted. It's often quoted, but partially quoted, and therefore misquoted. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And that's where the partial quote ends. That's where... The sentence presumably ends. That's where the complete thought presumably, wrongfully ends. It says, if we believe in his name, we are children of God. Right? If we receive him, we have the right to become children of God. And then he explains, what do I mean? What does he mean? To those who believe in his name. So many people say, believe, 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 believe but they never explain how it is possible for someone who hates the light, someone who practices evil, someone who loves darkness, how it is that he can be transformed from dark to light, from evil to good, right? That's what needs to be explained. And when they cite John 1.12, believe in his name, without also saying, verse 13, if you see in your Bibles... Your Bibles will have, at the end of verse 12, a comma. A comma means that there is a partial thought there. So we should finish the sentence for the complete thought. We would never want anybody to take us out of context, correct? It would make us very upset if someone took us out of context, whatever it is, especially if it was on a very important subject. Let's not take God out of context. Verse 13, God explains. Verse 13, how is it that they believed and became children of God? 13, who were born? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of blood. Your ancestry, your lineage, your genealogy does not matter. Doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Gentile. None of that matters nor of the will of the flesh. Why does he say nor of the will of the flesh? Because of John chapter 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's not going to produce spiritual life. 
It's not the will of the flesh. So there is no way that the will of man, based on its own power, believe in Christ. It will not happen. It only produces flesh, not spirit. Further, 13, nor of the will of man. Nor of the will of man. One man cannot help another man be saved. What we can do is preach the word and pray, but when that transformation in the human heart actually occurs, did the other man do it? No. He says, nor of the will of man, but of God. There. He was born of God, therefore he believed and became a child of God. That's the sequence of events. We don't believe to be born again. We are born again or born of God to believe. We are born of God to believe. We are born again. We are regenerated to believe. God gives us a new heart to believe. That is the correct biblical sequence. This is what Christ meant in John 6, 29. He put the emphasis on the fact that they needed, they should long for God transforming their heart to believe in Him. That's what they should have desired. That's what they needed to know. Not to trust themselves, but to trust God. Not to focus on the physical world, but focus on the spiritual world. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.